Chapter Seven of the Blythedale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Seven: The Convalescent. As soon as my incommodities allowed me to think of past occurrences, I failed not to inquire what had become of the odd little guest whom Hollingsworth had been the medium of introducing among us. It now appeared that poor Priscilla had not so literally fallen out of the clouds as we were at first inclined to suppose. A letter which should have introduced her had since been received from one of the city missionaries containing a certificate of character and an allusion to circumstances which, in the writer's judgment, made it especially desirable that she should find shelter in our community. There was a hint, not very intelligible, implying either that Priscilla had recently escaped from some particular peril or irksomeness of position, or else that she was still liable to this danger or difficulty, whatever it might be. We should ill have deserved the reputation of a benevolent fraternity had we hesitated to entertain a petitioner in such need and so strongly recommended to our kindness not to mention, moreover, that the strange maiden had set herself diligently to work, and was doing good service with her needle. But a slight mist of uncertainty still floated about Priscilla, and kept her as yet from taking a very decided place among creatures of flesh and blood. The mysterious attraction which from her first entrance on our scene she evinced for Zenobia had lost nothing of its force. I often heard her footsteps, soft and low, accompanying the light but decided tread of the latter up the staircase, stealing along the passageway by her new friend's side, and pausing while Zenobia entered my chamber. Occasionally Zenobia would be a little annoyed by Priscilla's too close attendance. In an authoritative and not very kindly tone, she would advise her to breathe the pleasant air in a walk, or to go with her work into the barn, holding out half a promise to come and sit on the hay with her when at leisure. Evidently Priscilla found but scanty requital for her love. Hollingsworth was likewise a great favorite with her. For several minutes together sometimes, while my auditory nerves retained the susceptibility of delicate health, I used to hear a low, pleasant murmur ascending from the room below, and at last ascertained it to be Priscilla's voice, babbling like a little brook to Hollingsworth. She talked more largely and freely with him than with Zenobia, towards whom, indeed, her feelings seemed not so much to be confidence as involuntary affection. I should have thought all the better of my own qualities had Priscilla marked me out for the third place in her regards. But though she appeared to like me tolerably well, I could never flatter myself with being distinguished by her, as Hollingsworth and Zenobia were. One forenoon during my convalescence there came a gentle tap at my chamber door. I immediately said, "'Come in, Priscilla,' with an acute sense of the applicant's identity. Nor was I deceived. It was really Priscilla, a pale, large-eyed little woman, for she had gone far enough into her teens to be at least on the outer limit of girlhood, but much less wan than at my previous view of her, 
and far better conditioned both as to health and spirits. As I first saw her, she had reminded me of plants that one sometimes observes doing their best to vegetate among the bricks of an enclosed court where there is scanty soil and never any sunshine. At present, though with no approach to bloom, there were indications that the girl had human blood in her veins. Priscilla came softly to my bedside and held out an article of snow-white linen, very carefully and smoothly ironed. She did not seem bashful nor anywise embarrassed. My weakly condition, I suppose, supplied a medium in which she could approach me. "'Do you not need this?' asked she. "'I have made it for you.' "'It was a nightcap.' "'My dear Priscilla,' said I, smiling, "'I never had on a nightcap in my life. "'But perhaps it will be better for me to wear one "'now that I am a miserable invalid. "'How admirably you have done it! "'No, no, I never can think of wearing "'such an exquisitely wrought nightcap as this "'unless it be in the daytime "'when I sit up to receive company.' "'It is for use, not beauty,' answered Priscilla. "'I could have embroidered it and made it much prettier if I pleased.' While holding up the nightcap and admiring the fine needlework, I perceived that Priscilla had a sealed letter which she was waiting for me to take. It had arrived from the village post-office that morning. As I did not immediately offer to receive the letter, she drew it back and held it against her bosom, with both hands clasped over it, in a way that had probably grown habitual to her. Now, on turning my eyes from the nightcap to Priscilla, it forcibly struck me that her air, though not her figure, and the expression of her face, but not its features, had a resemblance to what I had often seen in a friend of mine, one of the most gifted women of the age. I cannot describe it. The points easiest to convey to the reader were a certain curve of the shoulders and a partial closing of the eyes, which seemed to look more penetratingly into my own eyes through the narrowed apertures than if they had been open at full width. It was a singular anomaly of likeness coexisting with perfect dissimilitude. "'Will you give me the letter, Priscilla?' said I. She started, put the letter into my hand, and quite lost the look that had drawn my notice. "'Priscilla,' I inquired, "'did you ever see Miss Margaret Fuller?' "'No,' she answered. "'Because,' said I, "'you reminded me of her just now, "'and it happens, strangely enough, "'that this very letter is from her.' Priscilla, for whatever reason, looked very much discomposed. "'I wish people would not fancy such odd things in me,' she said rather petulantly. "'How could I possibly make myself resemble this lady merely by holding her letter in my hand?' "'Certainly, Priscilla, it would puzzle me to explain it,' I replied, "'nor do I suppose that the letter had anything to do with it. "'It was just a coincidence, nothing more.' She hastened out of the room, and this was the last that I saw of Priscilla until I ceased to be an invalid." Being much alone during my recovery, I read interminably in Mr. Emerson's essays, The Dial, Carlyle's Works, George Sand's Romances, lent me by Zenobia, and other books which one or another of the brethren or sisterhood had brought with them. Agreeing in little else, 
Most of these utterances were like the cry of some solitary sentinel whose station was on the outposts of the advance guard of human progression. Or sometimes the voice came sadly from among the shattered ruins of the past, but yet had a hopeful echo in the future. They were well adapted, better at least than any other intellectual products, the volatile essence of which had heretofore tinctured a printed page, to pilgrims like ourselves, whose present bivouac was considerably further into the waste of chaos than any mortal army of crusaders had ever marched before. Fourier's works also, in a series of horribly tedious volumes, attracted a good deal of my attention, from the analogy which I could not but recognize between his system and our own. There was far less resemblance, it is true, than the world chose to imagine, inasmuch as the two theories differed as widely as the zenith from the nadir in their main principles. I talked about Fourier to Hollingsworth, and translated for his benefit some of the passages that chiefly impressed me. When, as a consequence of human improvements, said I, the globe shall arrive at its final perfection, the great ocean is to be converted into a particular kind of lemonade, such as was fashionable at Paris in Fourier's time. He calls it limonade à cèdre. It is positively a fact. Just imagine the city docks filled every day with a flood tide of this delectable beverage. "'Why did not the Frenchman make punch of it at once?' asked Hollingsworth. "'The Jack Tars would be delighted to go down in ships and do business in such an element.' I further proceeded to explain, as well as I modestly could, several points of Fourier's system, illustrating them with here and there a page or two, and asking Hollingsworth's opinion as to the expediency of introducing these beautiful peculiarities into our own practice. "'Let me hear no more of it,' cried he in utter disgust. "'I never will forgive this fellow. He has committed the unpardonable sin.' For what more monstrous iniquity could the devil himself contrive than to choose the selfish principle, the principle of all human wrong, the very blackness of man's heart, the portion of ourselves which we shudder at, and which it is the whole aim of spiritual discipline to eradicate, to choose it as the master workman of his system, to seize upon and foster whatever vile, petty, sordid, filthy, bestial, and abominable corruptions have cankered into our nature, to be the efficient instruments of his infernal regeneration. And his consummated paradise, as he pictures it, would be worthy of the agency which he counts upon for establishing it. The nauseous villain— Nevertheless, remarked I, in consideration of the promised delights of his system, so very proper as they certainly are to be appreciated by Fourier's countrymen, I cannot but wonder that universal France did not adopt his theory at a moment's warning. But is there not something very characteristic of his nation in Fourier's manner of putting forth his views? He makes no claim to inspiration. He has not persuaded himself as Swedenborg did, and as any other than a Frenchman would with a mission of like importance to communicate, that he speaks with authority from above. 
He promulgates his system, so far as I can perceive, entirely on his own responsibility. He has searched out and discovered the whole counsel of the Almighty in respect to mankind, past, present, and for exactly seventy thousand years to come, by the mere force and cunning of his individual intellect. "'Take the book out of my sight,' said Hollingsworth, with great virulence of expression, "'or I tell you fairly I shall fling it in the fire. "'And as for Fourier, let him make a paradise, if he can, of Gehenna, "'where, as I conscientiously believe, he is floundering at this moment.' "'And bellowing, I suppose,' said I, "'not that I felt any ill-will towards Fourier, "'but merely wanted to give the finishing touch to Hollingsworth's image, "'bellowing for the least drop of his beloved limonade à cedre. "'There is but little profit to be expected "'in attempting to argue with a man "'who allows himself to declaim in this manner, "'so I dropped the subject and never took it up again.' But had the system at which he was so enraged combined almost any amount of human wisdom, spiritual insight, and imaginative beauty, I question whether Hollingsworth's mind was in a fit condition to receive it. I began to discern that he had come among us actuated by no real sympathy with our feelings and our hopes, but chiefly because we were estranging ourselves from the world with which his lonely and exclusive object in life had already put him at odds. Hollingsworth must have been originally endowed with a great spirit of benevolence, deep enough and warm enough to be the source of as much disinterested good as providence often allows a human being the privilege of conferring upon his fellows. This native instinct yet lived within him. I myself had profited by it in my necessity." It was seen, too, in his treatment of Priscilla. Such casual circumstances as were here involved would quicken his divine power of sympathy and make him seem, while their influence lasted, the tenderest man and the truest friend on earth. But by and by you missed the tenderness of yesterday and grew drearily conscious that Hollingsworth had a closer friend than ever you could be and this friend was the cold, spectral monster which he had himself conjured up, and on which he was wasting all the warmth of his heart, and of which at last, as these men of a mighty purpose so invariably do, he had grown to be the bond-slave. It was his philanthropic theory. This was a result exceedingly sad to contemplate, considering that it had been mainly brought about by the very ardor and exuberance of his philanthropy. Sad indeed, but by no means unusual. He had taught his benevolence to pour its warm tide exclusively through one channel, so that there was nothing to spare for other great manifestations of love to man, nor scarcely for the nutriment of individual attachments, unless they could minister in some way to the terrible egotism which he mistook for an angel of God. Had Hollingsworth's education been more enlarged, he might not so inevitably have stumbled into this pitfall. But this identical pursuit had educated him. He knew absolutely nothing except in a single direction, where he had thought so energetically and felt to such a depth, that no doubt the entire reason and justice of the universe appeared to be concentrated thitherward. 
It is my private opinion that at this period of his life Hollingsworth was fast going mad, and, as with other crazy people, among whom I include humorists of every degree, it required all the constancy of friendship to restrain his associates from pronouncing him an intolerable bore. Such prolonged fiddling upon one string, such multiform presentation of one idea, his specific object, of which he made the public more than sufficiently aware through the medium of lectures and pamphlets, was to obtain funds for the construction of an edifice with a sort of collegiate endowment. On this foundation he purposed to devote himself and a few disciples to the reform and mental culture of our criminal brethren. His visionary edifice was Hollingsworth's one castle in the air. It was the material type in which his philanthropic dream strove to embody itself, and he made the scheme more definite and caught hold of it the more strongly and kept his clutch the more pertinaciously by rendering it visible to the bodily eye. I have seen him a hundred times with a pencil and sheet of paper, sketching the façade, the side view, or the rear of the structure, or planning the internal arrangements, as lovingly as another man might plan those of the projected home where he meant to be happy with his wife and children. I have known him to begin a model of the building with little stones gathered at the brookside, whither we had gone to cool ourselves in the sultry noon of haying time. Unlike all other ghosts, his spirit haunted an edifice which, instead of being time-worn and full of storied love and joy and sorrow, had never yet come into existence. "'Dear friend,' said I once to Hollingsworth before leaving my sick chamber, I heartily wish that I could make your schemes my schemes, because it would be so great a happiness to find myself treading the same path with you. But I am afraid there is not stuff in me stern enough for a philanthropist, or not in this peculiar direction, or at all events not solely in this. Can you bear with me if such should prove to be the case?' "'I will at least wait a while,' answered Hollingsworth, gazing at me sternly and gloomily. "'But how can you be my lifelong friend except you strive with me towards the great object of my life?' "'Heaven forgive me, a horrible suspicion crept into my heart, and stung the very core of it as with the fangs of an adder.' I wondered whether it were possible that Hollingsworth could have watched by my bedside with all that devoted care, only for the ulterior purpose of making me a proselyte to his views. End of chapter 7